It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Our mum had a terrible accident when I was 16 and Nell was 18. And she lived for 22 years in this sort of hinterland between life and death in a way where she was kind of alive and dead at the same time because the mother that she had been was very much gone but she was still alive and there we were in at the heart of a really happy busy colorful family life where there was lasagna and home-baked bread and then suddenly that was completely gone I didn't feel hungry I didn't really feel anything but in pain we are going to lose the people that we love and we have to acknowledge that and live around that and I do feel familiarizing ourselves with the language of grief and death does take some of the fear away from it I just think grief is a really lonely process and only you can go through the stuff only you can live it and you can feel the emotions that you have to feel I'm author and journalist Laura Price and you're listening to Life in Food inspiring stories in bite-sized pieces Each week, I interview a different guest about how food has helped them through some of their biggest challenges. With a different theme each week, we look at everything from food and love to food and friendship, food and fertility, and even food and cancer. This week's episode is Food and Grief with Clover Stroud, best-selling author of The Red of My Blood, A Death and Life Story. Clover is a journalist who writes regularly for the Sunday Times, The Guardian, and the Saturday and Sunday Telegraph, and she's also written several non-fiction books, including The Wild Other and My Wild and Sleepless Nights. If, like me, you've read Clover's work over the years, you'll know she has five children, and she's talked very openly and extensively about the challenges of motherhood. Clover is here today to talk to us about grief. Her most recent book, The Red of My Blood, is about her grief around the death of her sister Nell from breast cancer in December 2019, right before the pandemic. It's a really moving, strikingly honest account of the grief that she felt in the first year after her sister's death, and it's something that I could relate to, not having experienced that same grief myself, but having been diagnosed with breast cancer 10 years ago and having known a lot of women who have sadly died way too young. Because this is the Life in Food podcast, Clover is here to talk to us about grief and its relationship with food. And I'm really interested to know how grief affects the appetite, how certain dishes can take on more or less significance after a death, and how food can bring joy and normality in the most difficult times of our lives. So Clover, thank you so much for joining me and welcome to Life in Food. It's lovely to be here. Thank you, Laura. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. I'm very excited to talk to you. Um, So I wanted to start by asking you about your sister now. What was she like and what was your relationship with her like? Well, we were the youngest of um, five children. So I'm the very youngest and then Nell was the next one and she was two years older than me. And um, then our elder siblings were... um, quite a bit older so Nan and I kind of grew up very much as the two siblings who were at home at the same time because because the older ones had sort of left I suppose by the time we were into kind of consciousness you know that you can remember really clearly 9, 10, 11 they'd they'd left home by then so I had a very very close relationship with Nell and she was a very um so she was a really really big personality she was very she was an artist which I understand now more clearly but her kind of desire to express herself and to create um and to create art was 
everything really from from childhood onwards and we had a very kind of close but also temperamental relationship and when I see it with my youngest two children particularly I've got a five-year-old and an eight-year-old two little sons and they're very very close and they will but they also fall out really fast and then they kind of refine their friendship really very very quickly as well and I think that Nell and I were quite like that and we also, um, and I think this is really profoundly important to who we both are as women, which is that our mum had a terrible accident when I was 16 and Nell was 18. And we'd had a very happy childhood kind of growing up in the countryside. And it was sort of idyllic in some way, some ways, um, certainly for us children anyway. And then, um, Mum, mum, you know, we rode as we rode horses as kids, but mum went riding one day and she fell off her horse and she had, um, she, she was in an accident and she, um, got really bad brain damage. She basically was in a coma for sort of three to four months. And then when she woke up, she had really profoundly bad brain damage, which left her extremely mentally and physically disabled. And we tried having her living at home for two years, which was when I was doing my A levels and Nell was on a kind of, just the year off just before university and we looked after mum at home together and and then after two years she went into a nursing home and I think that this kind of and she lived for 22 years in this sort of hinterland between life and death in a way where she was kind of alive and dead at the same time because the mother that she had been was very much gone but she was still alive and it definitely was very traumatic. I mean, even talking about it now makes me feel yeah. makes me feel quite emotional. Um, but I think that that kind of really formed us. That sort of mm. crucible, you know, it's a sort of violent place to be in a way as a teenager of kind of loss and grief and shock and the breakdown of our family. And I think that that walking through that together meant that we had a closeness, um, and because we were you know, we were basically, you're not a child at 16 and 18, but you kind of are. I mean, you are. If I look at my own children mm. who have, have been that age, and they are, they very much are children. So um, I think that the fact that we we experienced that together was really important. I think it's really informed so much of, of our work. I think both of us were continually in our work um, trying to express this this confusion over where our mother had gone and what had happened to her and what happened to family life. And Nell did that by by creating a circus. I mean, it was a very, very unusual kind of vehicle for creativity, but for her it was, it was the, the vehicle that she used to express herself. Um, and she started a circus in 2000, and it was beautiful. It was a beautiful creation that ran until, um, you know, until her death in 2019. It's still running but it has changed without her. And um, so so that's the kind of, that's the sort of the people that we were. And we very much lent into each other and then would kind of have violent outbursts of frustration and anger mm. towards each other as well. And I think that's really normal as siblings, as sisters who are close in age. Um, I think it's kind of staking out your relationship and who you are in relation to one another. Um and we had fun, you know, we grew up in the, we were teenagers in the 90s. So we were like ravers, we went raving, <laughs> university, we traveled, we had um, a lot of experiences. But I think what happened to our mum made us kind of give us a sort of a melancholy and a kind of energy as well. A melancholy mm-hmm. energy, yeah. Or an energetic and- melancholy, <laughs> maybe, <laughs> which informs so much of what we do and who we are. And did either of you, after the period where your mum had the accident, did either of you become the mother in a way or we, or did you sort of have alternating roles? I don't think either of us became the mother. I think that, um, I think we kind of were allies and enemies and allies and enemies, you know, falling in and falling out. But I don't think that one was more maternal to the other. I think we went through stages where we would both look after one another but I I definitely wouldn't say there was a maternal relationship at all yeah and what about food in your household was it a big Mm. part of your family life growing up Mm. yeah so we so um mum was a really good cook and I think she was probably a bit ahead of her times I was born in 1975 so I kind of 
you know, was aware. I can I can kind of remember the end of the seventies, which seems amazing now because that's like <laughs> a long, long time ago. I can remember the nineteen hundreds. I sound like a really old person, but um, and she, yeah, so she like made brown. She made brown bread and she cooked brown rice, and she hated it when we um use too many bottles like I remember her I always think about this when I talk hear about you know plastics she would say oh, you're using too many shampoo and conditioner bottles there shouldn't be all this plastic in the in around the edge of the bath she um obviously that's not to do with food but that was her kind of quite progressive I suppose outlook she definitely would never have bought a ready meal ever <laughs> I don't think I ever ever had a ready meal um in my life at all a ready meal was prop was like as close to a ready meal as you got was like a boiled egg with soldiers I suppose <laughs> but um she I do remember her cooking really clearly my father was away Monday to Friday working he worked in tv and he lived in London and we were at home with mum and kind of what was for supper was a really big part of the day so coming home from school and mum would have cooked like a, you know bolognese or a pie or sometimes it was like scrambled eggs on toast or cheese on toast but then sometimes it was like a lasagna or fish chowder um or cottage pie and and those kind of days I was talking with my husband Pete actually about how much we take food for granted now and that as a child having lasagna for supper was like the most exciting thing that you could imagine. It was so like, that was a real result to come home and find there was lasagna because I do remember my dad coming home from London at that time and bringing, uh, you know, he went to, he worked in Soho and he went to like the Italian um, food shop there and bought pesto and olive oil. And those things were really, really quite exotic. And then mum just started growing basil. We had a greenhouse, started growing basil and making her own pesto. But it's a really different time in terms of food. The fact that pesto, something that, you know, you pick up for £1.99 in a jar in every kind of convenience store, corner shop whatever I mean you know, mm. I'm constantly buying jars of pesto because it's the quickest yes yeah, it's easiest things to, to to make for the children when I can't think of anything else to make so it was a really really different time food wise and eating properly eating home-cooked food was important to mum but then I mean I say that I didn't eat ready meals I don't suppose anybody was I mean I guess there was things like Finder's crispy pancakes. I remember yeah. seeing those advertised on TV and like <laughs> desperately wanting a Finder's crispy pancake, but there was no way that mum was ever going to give us that. We didn't even really have fish fingers, like, you know, that, that kind of convenience. But it's extraordinary now when you drive, you know, I drive down the road near here where I live in Oxfordshire, go past a garage, and in in that garage, my children come into the garage with me and there's sushi and breaded chicken and pizzas and um, boxes of mangoes. And that kind of, I think it's really important to try and remember how luxurious that is as well. Mm. Because I remember going to a garage as a child and like if they sold Mars bars, that was the result. <laughs> but isn't it funny that you really, really wanted the Finder's crispy pancakes, but actually you were the privileged one getting the fresh home cooked yeah. food f from scratch yeah. versus people who got the ready meals the whole time and probably wasn't very nutritious for them. Yeah, no, absolutely. But I suppose as a child, you probably always want the other you want something different all the oh time. yeah pop tarts pop tarts were always the big one I think yeah. in, growing up in the 80s um so and then when your mother suffered the accident uh, how did the the cooking and the food at home dynamic change I know you were sort of older by then but did it mean you learned to cook or did your father cook um so so I was 16 when it happened I was in the first term of my A-levels and it was a very very strange time because um, you know, we and I talked to Nell about this briefly before she died. There we were in at the heart of a really happy, busy, colourful family life where there was lasagna and home baked bread and salads and you know, homemade pesto even, and then suddenly that was completely gone. And for a few months my elder siblings did come back and my dad was there a lot, but then 
it's quite difficult to remember some of that time. I mean, I do remember it. And sometimes I feel like my mind doesn't really want to go there. We had, um, because my dad worked in London and he, to be fair on him, he did have to, the choice was either to sell our house instantly um, or to carry on working because, you know, he had a mortgage and so on. And I think that would have been very difficult for me to go and to have lost that home instantly so I think he made a decision to do nothing for two years to stay living as we were for two years Um, and he carried on working in London so Nell and I were kind of on our own in this big house with some lodgers and friends used to come and stay it was very strange because it's kind of what you want as a teenager is like your own freedom your you know total freedom to do what you want but you don't Mm -hmm. want it within this sort of gothic horror show that was happening around us Mm. as well which was mum coming back home you know very brain damaged doubly incontinent epileptic we had two different girls came to live with us as sort of not nannies but like girl fridays i suppose you would call Mm. them to do some of the because i couldn't drive as well and we lived in the middle of the country they did some cooking neighbors helped out with cooking um I remember eating quite a lot of like bacon sandwiches. I remember there was this vegetable stew that me and Nell used to make where you kind of cut up some peppers and onions and carrots and then put it in a big heavy cast iron pan with some can of tomatoes and put potatoes on the top. And I used to think it was absolutely delicious. And I was thinking the other day, it doesn't sound really very nice, (laughs) but maybe I should retry and make it because it would certainly the taste of it. And I really do very clearly remember making that with Nell and then maybe putting some cheese on the top of it as well and cooking we had an aga and cooking that um eating quite a lot of cereal it was kind of from what I can remember most clearly it was sort of a bit fend for yourself Mm. it was it was a difficult time yeah just before we move on to kind of your grief, I wanted to ask you a little bit about Nell's experience with breast cancer and food, because mm. um, having been through that, I know that a lot of people when they're diagnosed with cancer of any type, um, try to change their diet, because you hear all these things like, you know, mm. if you don't eat sugar, then that'd be good mm. for you and, and things like that. Did did Nell change her diet much when she was, I know she had um, different stages of breast cancer over mm. quite a long period of time. Mm. Yeah, so she was diagnosed in 2015. She had stage four cancer when they, when they found it. So it was quite advanced. And she she kind of did a bit tentatively to start with. She did on and off during that time. She would go through stages of trying to eat less meat or trying to eat less dairy, trying to eat less sugar. Um, she had a friend who lived with her who helped her with the cooking because she was getting divorced at that time Mm. and this friend was very very good cook who was brilliant at like roasting vegetables and making delicious rice with ginger and sultanas and things like that there was always like Danny was responsible for cooking some really really delicious food I know that Nell felt that and she was quite resistant to start with to anything kind of alternative because she said not that diet is alternative, but like that anything other than conventional medicine, because she said that she felt like she didn't like this feeling that if she just searched hard enough and found, you know, sourced every recommendation she had for different kinds of berries or herbs or a special Mm -hmm. person who could do something to some of her hair or uh, some kind of treatment around the way that she treated her milk or something like you know something she was going to eat that that would be the thing she didn't like the kind of endless quest for the snake oil I suppose is what and and um I think that she did diet was the easiest thing to sort of change a bit but then she would rebel against it she gave up drinking and actually that then became something really important to her creativity definitely not drinking alcohol became something that really motivated her to create more and I think it did really help her and actually I gave up drinking about um not quite a year nearly a year ago it'll be a year in August and I have to say it has been really profound actually and it's such a big change in your life it is a big thing but she did so she did bits and pieces and sometimes she'd have like a fridge full of oat milk and then sometimes you'd go and she'd have like blue blue top milk, you know. So she didn't it wasn't absolutely religious, but she did she did try. Yes, mm-hmm. she did try a bit. 
I think it's a really difficult balance as well between, you know, if you do have stage four cancer, there's also quality of life is so important. Mm. And you also, if you really love a food, then you don't want to give it up just because Mm. it might, you know, Mm. add on months to your life or whatever necessarily did you you change your diet I did I experimented with I I gave up sugar for a while I stopped drinking milk um and I never drank that much alcohol and now I'm really careful with alcohol because I think that's the I don't I I don't believe in cutting anything out entirely uh because Mm -hmm. I think that that just makes you want it more so obviously everything in moderation as we all know but I, I I really increased my vegetable Mm. um intake that was one of the main things that I did but yeah I mean I'm 10 years on now and I can't I'm not gonna you know deny myself enjoyment and I actually write about restaurants for a living as well so I kind of have to still eat everything or at least that's what I tell myself as my (laughs) excuse for not being vegan yet Um, I think it's true that sort of pleasure pain payoff I think that's what Nell felt I mean she didn't like the whole battle with cancer you know if she just battled hard enough she was going to win the battle um she really tried to live with cancer as well rather than battle against it I suppose um but I mean I think she ate pretty well in the last couple of years because of Danny doing this cooking Mm. and I when I used to go there there was like you know delicious really delicious roasted squash with chili and feta or just like so the kind of food that I dream, I mean, I've been trying recently to make my diet a bit better and um, not eat. It's so difficult when you're working from home and like looking after the kids and so on. I end up eating a lot of bread, bread based meals. <laughs> and I've in the last few weeks, I've been trying to cut that, that out and eat more salads and prepare boxes of food. And that was actually actually that does remind me that was one thing that Nell did do. She got really into preparing boxes of food like um chopping up a load of carrots tomatoes you know so that the stuff was all there and you could just grab it out of the fridge Mm. and she used to say to me oh god you should do it as well Chloe and like she'd have like these boxes of butter beans and stuff and I really remember her saying you know they last for a good few days they don't go fizzy you know that way beans (laughs) kind of weird and fizzy yeah and I remember her joking about that. So she did that to start with and she got plastic boxes. And then after a while, she, she, you know, obviously plastics are not so good for food storage. She got these glass boxes and she was, you know, she went through sort of crazes. So I suppose in the same way in her treatment, there was kind of different crazes as well. Yeah. Um, I, I, what you said about Danny, Danny sounds like an incredible friend. And I, I, what yes. I always say to people, um, if anyone they know is, diagnosed with or suffering from anything really could be grief it could be um uh cancer or or whatever or whatever Mm. depression whatever illness um I always say if you don't know what to do for someone just take them food you know may offer to cook for them or offer to go around and cook for them or if they're a new mother as well yeah it's such a profound act of care for somebody a Mm. place food and I think I mean I find it difficult because I'm really the only one in my house who cooks and um, I quite like cooking, but because I have to do every single meal, I don't really like it anymore. And I absolutely crave <clears throat> for somebody to just put a plate of food fully prepared with dressings on, like not to say, oh, what do you want me to cook for supper? Or what shall I go to the supermarket and buy? Part of the, a big part of food preparation is like the mental load and the care that goes into it, isn't it? Mm. And um I think that when I'm given a plate of food that somebody's made, I don't know what it is, but it's just there. It's all ready and prepared. That really moves me, actually. As a mum, that makes me feel like somebody is really caring for me and really nurturing me and kind of loving me in some way or another. And um, I think as a mum, you quite often don't feel like you're particularly cared for by... I mean, you all love each other. Family all loves each other. But, like, the actual you know, the actual work, the work of preparing a meal. I cooked a Mexican meal for the fam- my family on Saturday night and I was really excited about it. It took about two and a half hours to cook, loads of chopping. It was absolutely delicious. It was one of Tom- from Thomasina Myers' mm. cookbook. It was really, really good. I don't think any of my family had any idea. They were all wandering off, watching t- screens outside. You know, I don't think they had any idea of the amount of care and love that had gone into it and I think that that's it's weird how food can become a potential minefield I suppose isn't it 
Yeah, I mean, I don't think, yeah, I absolutely feel that myself when you spend hours and hours cooking and the person, the recipient doesn't know how much love and care went into it. But mm-hmm. I think you've probably just got to take something out of that yourself. You know, mm-hmm. you know that you're putting the love and care into it and, and they will feel that even if they don't realize it, I think, because, you know, you you already said that you appreciated how much your mother cooked for you as a child and you probably didn't at the time realize that she was spending hours or whatever making that lasagna but you remember it as a really strong and powerful memory so yeah you probably did appreciate it more than you thought at the time yeah maybe when I think I definitely think with parenting you get when you get older you suddenly realize what your parents have done or tried to do or how much they've you know I think I don't think I really appreciated my dad I mean my mum I couldn't talk to because she couldn't, she lost the ability to speak or communicate or know what was going on or who I was. But with my dad, I think I only really, really started to appreciate him as a person and the amount of work and what he was going through. And he was a young man and, and how hard it was until I was in my, you know, I'm shocked to say truly into my sort of mid to late thirties. You so mm. kind of, now I look at what he's done and think, God, you know, that was that you gave us so much. You worked so hard for that. And I feel a bit guilty about the lack of appreciation. So maybe my children will one day look back. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure they will. So um, moving on to your book, The Red Mm. of My Blood, your incredible book, which I recommend everyone listens to on Audible if they like that kind of thing, because it's Mm. in your narrated by you, which is wonderful. Mm. So I don't think I've read anything like this book in terms of the way you describe your grief. Um, And I don't know how um, much your grief was affected by the fact that Nell's death was very sudden, because she obviously had cancer for a long time. But uh, I believe you were told that she had a long time to live and then suddenly um, she was yes. suddenly she was only given a day to live. Um, but in the book, you talk really movingly about how you experienced colours suddenly more vividly and how also um, you experienced sex more vividly mm. and more powerfully as if you were experiencing um, life in a different way to how mm. it had been for you before. So I wanted to ask you about food. Mm-hmm. Did you also experience um, food in in a more vivid way than before? Did things taste differently? Um, mm. And yeah, did 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 that experience change? Yes, I'm really pleased that you sort of um, because the book is very colourful. It is about walking through the first year after Nell's death. But I my experience of that, as I think many people's experience of grief, is is very, very bleak and dark. And yet there is at the heart of it, this feeling of being very alive and very close to, maybe close to death. And that takes you very close to, to life at the same time. And it was Christmas. Nell died on, on at the beginning of um, December, 2019. So it was Christmas immediately afterwards. And how to get through Christmas was quite a big deal. I do remember um, a, a kind of... Uh, Two days after, so it was like early, it's probably the second week in December, there was a children's nativity play. I don't remember eating anything at all. Um, when when I was called into hospital by her, um, you know, her doctor, and he said, she's got a day to live, your sister's got a day to live. I don't, then we spent two days in hospital with her, which was completely surreal and completely appalling, because I do remember this feeling of death genuinely death coming into the room and sort of waiting and then take you know and then taking her away and the feeling of the darkness that that brings with it and also the kind of awe of it because you are there with death with the most serious thing that can happen I don't remember eating anything at all during that time I do remember on Sunday night after she died which was just awful going home with my dad and my stepmother and the children, I think, had gone to bed and drinking. You know, we drank kind of two bottles of red wine. And I do remember thinking, like, red wine was the most incredible anaesthetic. And it, was, it sort of felt completely necessary to take the take something, some kind of edge off this horrific pain and shock of her having died. The first thing that I can remember is two days later, being at the children's <clears throat> nativity and... Um, they're at a little village school near here, a little state school. And um, I remember being given by one of the mums a 
a kind of plastic, you know, polystyrene cup of really delicious homemade soup, mm. like a beef soup that somebody makes at school, and it being really, really incredibly delicious. And maybe it was that thing of nurture, of care, you know, somebody kind of finding something, some way of supporting, and this really hot, delicious um, little little cup of soup is is quite seared into my consciousness actually after that there's that feeling in grief that you know the people around you need feeding like I knew my children need feeding I knew that the family needed that nurture and yet in the immediate aftermath of death there's a huge amount of work to be done there's a huge amount of driving around going to see undertakers picking up picking up death certificates going to look at the burial plot going to go to the I mean, Nell's memorial, her her um, funeral was at Gloucester Cathedral, like working out what on earth's going on, going to my dad's who lived in London to work out what, you know, what would happen for the funeral. And I don't really remember eating during that time, but I do remember a deep, deep sense of gratitude to the friends who bought the tray of macaroni, the chocolate mm. cake, the, um, you know, the bits and pieces for people to eat, basically. And I do remember... <clears throat> that ready meal eat you know who do the really quite good ready meals I remember like somebody I remember the freezer being full of some of those because grief is so disorientating kind of discombobulating it's so physically exhausting it's so physically confusing that doing something like chopping up onions trying to make a cheese sauce for lasagna becomes too much just too much to do in and that's completely okay I think as well you know Mm -hmm. if you are when somebody has died having to do the preparation of food the laundry the the kind of day-to-day stuff of everyday life that all sort of spins out into the corners of your life and as you said you know offering somebody some food or you know I think I think if somebody's died, taking a tray of food around is like really one of the most valuable things you you can do. Because also usually in the aftermath of a death, there's usually quite a lot of people in the house as well. Mm-hmm. And um, and people need feeding. And it's important that they are fed. I do know that in the first three months, I lost about a stone. <laughs> and I was really pleased. <clears throat> I was really, really pleased that I lost a stone because it felt like a little joke that I could have with Nell. Because Nell absolutely loved losing weight and both of us are like none of us neither of us are kind of slender little you know we're both quite big I suppose and she was always wanting to lose weight she was always wanting to kind of like trying to get me to lose weight and so I remember about I think it was about the time of the funeral or after the funeral because her funeral was was a month after her death getting on the scales and seeing that I'd lost a stone and thinking sort of saying to her well that's like one of the strange, you know, benefits of this whole absolutely horrific experience. You've died, but at least I've lost some weight. And I almost felt as though she could, you know, I did feel connected to her through that because I knew that she'd be like, oh, great, that's really, really good. Yeah, absolutely. I love that idea of having a little joke with mm-hmm. with the, your loved one who's died afterwards about something that would have amused them. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Um, um, and uh, the actual weight loss itself, was that because you lost your appetite because you were in so much pain and grief? I think it's... Um a loss of appetite and also the adrenaline and the thing of running around and um you know being extremely active and but i think it's mostly adrenaline the feeling of um mm. you just don't need, really need to eat you don't really feel hungry i didn't feel i didn't feel hungry i didn't really feel anything but in pain at that time i didn't think oh gosh i'll feel better if i you know if i sit down and eat this plate of food there wasn't any kind of pleasure like that I suppose yeah um there's a part in the book I don't know how long after Nell's death it was but where Mm. you talked about feeding your kids pancakes Mm. and we kind of talk about that sweet relief of Mm. comfort food Mm. and I wanted to explore the foods that we see as comfort foods because you talked about macaroni then and you mentioned Mm. something else I've forgotten what it was now but that someone brought around um and I don't know why why do you think we reach for these sweet unhealthy stodgy carb-based comfort foods foods in those moments and can you explain what it is about them that provides relief if any um I suppose they don't demand anything of you at all when I think about a really like a really good macaroni a really like properly cheesy creamy macaroni is quite simple it's not very expensive it's not gonna kind of surprise you in the way that like a curry or a crunchy salad or something like that would you can lose yourself in it a bit in fact talking about it now makes me want to eat one really badly um and I suppose it's also a kind of nostalgia as well I think that for me definitely when I think about my mum I think about macaroni so it is macaroni cheese so it is like a reference back to the childhood as well Mm um sugar you know sugar somebody bought a chocolate cake around so the thing of like just the kind of instant pleasure the instant hit I suppose of something sugary um feels like a way of finding some some relief in some way or another and I you know I still do it and kind of have to battle against it that desire to just reach for biscuits or whatever Mm. sometimes I find myself in the evenings when I can't go to sleep going down to the kitchen and eating I don't even want to eat them that much but like something like um digestive biscuits like proper McVitie's digestive biscuits not the cheap you know own somebody else's some other like Aldi doing some knockoff their own brand because that's what I would usually buy but if I splash out on a packet of McVitie's digestives and some really cold milk. There's something so, so comforting about that. Or eating a digestive biscuits and an apple. That really reminds me <sighs> of my childhood, actually, because I think there was something almost almost a tiny bit like luxurious about an apple and a digestive biscuit at the same time. Mm, yeah, amazing. Um, and are, are there any foods you can't or couldn't eat because you associated them so much with Nell and that caused you pain? There was often around her, there was often a big meal being cooked. There was often a lot of people at her house. Mm. And um, sometimes I think it's strange because, you know, her death came at the same time or just before the pandemic. So the gathering together of large groups of people didn't happen. And in a way, I'm very interested, by the way, as a society, we are kind of reimagining ourselves. And I personally am experiencing a change. I, I, I gather together and am gathered together less than I was before, even though now there really isn't a reason not to. I mean, and so it's strange. I, I don't know whether it's a post-pandemic thing or a post-grief thing, but that thing of yeah, a lot of people eating together doesn't seem to happen so often, which is kind of sad. Mm. And 
sometimes it's kind of relief at the same time as well. It's a bit of both, really. But I suppose if I saw, when I think of a long table with big salads and a big, you know, some kind of lamb, Nell really liked to do a really, really slow roast shoulder of lamb so that it was kind of falling apart. She had quite an unusual way of mixing. I think I did write about this at one point. You know, one of the things that people said to me was like, go and go to the places that she would have liked and listen to the music she would like and cook the things that she would have liked. And if I think about now, I definitely think about pomegranates, pomegranate seeds Mm. on some um, cheese or on some squash, or she made this really unusual like spatchcock chicken cooked in tequila and (laughs) like slightly strange things like that. Actually, there is something that makes me, think of her so much I find it so painful every time I see them and I might not even be able to say it without crying but um when in her early 20s Nell went and worked in circuses when she left university she went and worked in circuses all like a lot of them were in Kent and on on the south coast and Essex that direction and I would go and stay with her quite often and I remember <clears throat> this one day where she was down um, somewhere in Kent and we, we she'd sort of made a picnic and it was, I don't think I can say this thing, it was roll mop herrings. And when I see them now, like in a supermarket or something, it's it's still like a complete, I mean, it's making me want to cry now just thinking about it, but the memory of her going and buying those herrings so I don't even like herrings because I can't eat them now there's no way that I can eat them if I see them in a supermarket or something I have to look away because the memory is so so strong and the kind of poignancy of it I suppose and um so that I think that's the food item which nobody else I've never told anybody that but nobody else knows about that that I would associate most strongly with her and she also had a really great way of in my in my I guess it was when my eldest two children who are 21 and 18 when they were really young children in my they were born in my mid 20s late 20s I used to spend a lot of time with her then in my late 20s and into my early 30s before I met my second husband um, and I go over to her house. I lived in Oxford and she lived about half an hour outside Oxford. I go over there and she would, and this was like way before cancer and actually way before the circus was big. And I actually remember it very like with a great deal of affection because it seems like a kind of about as close as we've ever come to kind of normal life, I suppose, which was just being at her house with the kids. She would have made um, some kind of cake, or she would have put a cake that she bought in a shop on a plate with, she went through a real stage of using those paper doilies to make things look nice. Um, And I really associate that food with her. And then that would be on a Friday night usually and stay the night with her. And then she would always cook like a big fried breakfast the next day. And that was, that's a happy memory. The herrings, we didn't, nothing went wrong when she bought the herrings, but it's just the poignancy of them. Mm. And so powerful. It's like, it's weird, isn't it? Who would have thought a roll mop herring could like incite that same poignancy as, you know, a piece of music or smell, Mm. like that very, very kind of tangible, fast form of sensory memory yeah but food can that's the thing it's such a powerful thing like flavors and smells I think are just just as powerful as music Mm. and words Mm. um and so the other way around so obviously the herring is something that you you can't eat because it's too difficult but uh, going the other way around um so in my novel single bald female the character Jess has lost her mother and um, but she used to bake a lot with her mother and she finds that baking the things they bake together is obviously really difficult, but also brings them closer together. Is there anything that you've been able to do food-wise that sort of brings you closer to Nell and brings back those memories in a in a way that you're able to take at the moment? Um, I do enjoy, she really enjoyed cooking lentils and she really, really, she introduced me to short grain brown rice, which maybe loads of people know about but it's that and it's holland and pat barrett do a really good version of it and it's really really delicious rice which is not as kind of full-on as brown rice and it's not as 
instant and white as white rice and it's really really nice with olive oil and lemon juice and garlic quite simple mm. or like um you know orange lentils cooking that quite simply as a as a sort of dal i can i really remember her doing that and i think every time i cook that then i feel closer to her in some way or another there's also a recipe that i write about in the book which was cooking potatoes with cardamom and ginger and garlic and um, coconut milk. Mm. And she'd really, really like that. So, and tomatoes as well. So that's quite a nice thing. Amazing. And um, the pandemic obviously came, we all went into lockdown like two or three months after Nell's death. Um, and suddenly everyone was baking sourdough and banana mm. bread and this whole baking fever sweep, swept the nation. How was that period for you um, in terms of food? It must have just been completely bizarre. And Yeah, I mean, it was uh, when the pandemic happened, I actually felt I felt really, really, really grateful and really privileged. And I felt really aware of my privilege of I was healthy. My family was healthy. We lived in a where we live now in a house surrounded by fields. I had plenty of space. Um I could carry on working. My husband, Pete, could carry on working. I had nothing to complain about at all. The children were all at home, and my eldest child, who's 21, had come home. He was 19, I guess, about that at that time. Um, so all the kids were at home, which was really nice. The elder kids helped with the younger ones with homeschool or whatever you can call it. I don't know how much homeschooling <laughs> they did, but I was writing the book. I started writing the book in the summer of 2020. Yeah, I was aware that what I was going through was a very universal experience and it also felt very extraordinary and outside the ordinary. And yet it was the experience of grief, which we will all go through at some point or other if we haven't already. I wanted to record it and kind of really pay attention to what was happening and where I was going to get to in this process. And that's sort of what the book is about. So I was writing the book in this strange time and it was that weird time mm. of the pan the first bit of the the first lockdown it was actually really beautiful weather wasn't it and everyone yeah. was talking it was completely novel and completely weird and um and I felt lucky and and um but I do remember the food prep being pretty full-on because of all the children at home and trying to get everyone into a routine which is not something that this household does at all <laughs> of uh well somebody will cook this you know lunch that day and I, I went through a real stage of trying to make homemade hummus actually now used to make homemade made hummus that was another one as a sort of like okay how do I feed everyone cheaply continue you know continually so I made quite a lot of soups and hummus I think I made bread bread once or twice but I didn't go down a big bread route I have to say um of course, nobody else did any cooking at all. So the homemade hummus and stuff, I think, probably went out the window quite quickly. <laughs> but it was also a strange vortex of being together as a family, cut off from the rest of the world, which was quite nice. It was quite nice. I spent a lot of time on my own with the children. Pete's away a lot of the time, and he was forced to be at home, and the, ch and the bigger children were here. And I did really miss Nell a lot at that stage because she also – loved extremities i mean she was someone who lived in places of ex sort of emotional and literally you know she lived in a circus she lived in extreme places um i really wanted to talk to her so much about what you're doing what you're cooking are you stockpiling are you like you know what do you think about it all but obviously i couldn't um but in a way i don't know i think it's so strange what we've all been through and i think we're only just kind of finding our feet again aren't we and trying yeah. to learn how to communicate and be together and that's the thing that we were talking about earlier of you know the big social gatherings I don't know do you feel like your social life has changed yeah I mean I, I've also completely changed my life anyway because I met my partner a year or so into the pandemic and moved in last year with him and his three children who live with us half the time so my life has just got like I, I spent a year and a half all of the lockdowns I spent completely on my own didn't hug a single person I had a lodger for a while but most of the time I didn't touch or 
barely saw a single person and now I live in a house of five and my life has completely changed so I'm, I'm processing lots and lots and lots of different um emotions and things so that's yeah. so interesting and so your conception of food and cooking and food prep must have completely changed as well then yeah it has yeah I'm 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 fully with you now on the making pasta with pesto quite a lot (laughs) and yeah cooking for lots of different people and different dietary requirements and things but Mm. it's uh it's all good it's all a positive for me Mm. so Mm. um yeah and I wanted to ask you um it's been nearly two and a half years since Nell died now how has your grief changed in that time Mm. I think something really strange happens, which is that in the second year, the person that you've lost moves further into the past, actually becomes somebody of the past. Like my mother is somebody of the past. And the act of keeping that person present is an act. It's a practice. It's difficult. Mm. It's um, it's difficult. And it also becomes more natural in a strange kind of way. I think the second year is really, I think, kind of facing that and getting your head around that in the second year is really really difficult and I think it kind of plunges you into a deeper more in a way a more profound sense of grief because the grief of the first year is so sort of novel it's so novel and then the reality of like I'm living with this forever Mm. is very very sad and very very hard um I really try and kind of honor Nell and bring her into our lives in ways that I can but also like normal life does just you know the kind of that forward momentum of time does go on and it has to go on and the children's lives you know they get bigger and their lives kind of start taking up some of the space I suppose as well which is evolution it's like the you know it's the process of process of being a human being um so i i I, but i also feel that living with grief is like a i think there's a kind of there is a creativity at the heart of it as well which is a choice and for me that is trying to push my writing and the way that Mm. i express myself with my writing and trying to um be more serious about it and live it more fully and allow it to take up more space in my life and that i suppose also works because the kids are getting slight i mean my youngest is only five so they're not getting that much older but they are they need me slightly less they're at school all day so i think for me that is a way that i try and cope with the pain because there is a coping and there is also I just think grief is a really lonely process mm-hmm. and only you can go through the stuff. Only you can live it. Only you can feel the emotions that you have to feel. I think that if you don't feel those emotions and you're taking yourself into a Well, for me, that would be taking myself to a precarious place if I didn't feel them. Mm-hmm. And that's what I was really trying to do in the writing was to immerse myself in it fully. And it's been really wonderful having messages from people who've read it on social media I and mean, I love Instagram but mm. like people saying um you know it's really enabled them to understand their grief for their mum who died six years ago or their brother who died mm. four years ago it's it's like put words to an to an experience that is often described as beyond words and that feels like a real privilege and I suppose that's what I sort of hold on to in a way and trying to find Life is so chaotic and it's so, I mean, I had a really awful week two weeks ago. Last week was really good. And then I've just had a really quite an awful weekend. And just, you know, when things were better last week, I thought, oh, that's great. I'm like, you know, it's all cool. Everything is picking up again. And then you kind of smash into a couple of days where everyone's falling out and everyone's annoyed and something doesn't work out how you think it's going to. And that's life, isn't it? You know, it's the experience of life. For me, life is very, very disorderly, very chaotic, very (laughs) extreme. I don't know whether that's just having five kids. I think it might be something (laughs) to do with it. But maybe it's not. Maybe it's just the way that I process and feel things as well. And I think many, many, many of us do. And I think the more that we can share that. I posted something on my Instagram today about like, whoops, there's real peaks and troughs going on here. And it's wonderful. I find it so wonderful the way people say, oh, I really needed to hear that. I've just had a really difficult yeah. And then you just feel less alone, don't you? Absolutely. And, you know, you talked about um, 
processing your grief everyone processes grief completely differently just as everyone experiences life completely differently and that brings me on to the topic of how everyone experiences death differently Mm. and we're talking just a few days after Deborah James or Dame Deborah James as she is now um, shared with the world that she's now going through end-of-life care at home Mm. and it's brought to the fore this kind of nationwide conversation about death which I think was so badly needed and I know I've heard you speak on podcasts before saying that we need to talk about death more so I just wanted to um, ask you how um, why do you think it's important that we talk more openly about death and how do you think people should approach that conversation? I think what Dame I love the I've absolutely love it the fact that she is Dame and I'm really hoping that she's loving it as well. (laughs) Oh she will be. Dame Deborah I think what she's doing at the moment is incredibly courageous. What she's done throughout her life, clearly, she's a courageous, brilliant woman. What she's done in the last five years has increased awareness of cancer and cancer treatment and how to live with that in such a kind of tangible way. And what she's doing now of allowing us into her death in some way or another. And it's been very sort of difficult and beautiful and startling watching her, you know, watching interviews with her now and she has changed physically as well and I think we're all witnessing the kind of you know what she's told us is is the end of her life and that's such a brave thing to do it's such a bold thing to do it's such a um uh generous thing to do and I think that having the conversations about death are really really important because otherwise we kind of put it in a place that gives it a I mean, it is powerful. Let's face it. There's nothing more powerful, really, than yeah. death. But it gives it a kind of, it puts a taboo around it, uh, a fear around it, which is rightful that there is a fear of it because it is, you know, it's the unknown. And yet it is a thing that's going to happen to absolutely all of us. And we are going to be the one, hopefully, that people are going to miss one day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, we are going to lose the people that we love. And we have to acknowledge that and live around that. And I do feel that kind of familiarising ourselves with the language of grief and death does take some of the fear away from it. Mm. I mean, with my kids, I talk to them about death a lot. I talk to them about what they believe or don't believe. Um, and I'm trying not, nothing, you know, when I die, nothing will make the death of your mother is never going to be a nice experience for children. It's never going to be an easy experience. But if they sort of have a sense of this is a this is a place I've talked about with mum. This is a thing that I've talked about. This is what mum thought about the afterlife mm-hmm. or reincarnation or signs and so on. I think if I had that more of that with Nell and my mum, it would have made it a lot easier. I don't. I didn't have those conversations with either of them. Mum because she couldn't speak, and Nell because she didn't really want to talk about it. So I think that we also, by talking about it, we help to share what is a painful process and share the knowledge that we've gained about it as well. And in sharing that, we are more human. We're more connected to one another. And that's turning something sad and lonely and scary into something beautiful and generous and essentially full of love. I mean, look at Deborah. That's exactly what she's doing. She completely personifies generosity Mm. and love and a boldness and so yes I think the conversations really really matter absolutely yeah well I hope some people take some things from that and perhaps explore different ways to to talk about death and grief um so I'm just going to end on the quick questions that I ask everyone at the end of this podcast Mm. so your relationship to food fuel or pleasure completely one part of the other I cannot say that eating a bowl of cereal like quickly before school is a particularly pleasurable experience but then this morning I actually did mash up an avocado and put some sliced chili on it and so that was actually you know that was pleasurable certainly it's you know that it's light and dark it's like life light and dark they are they they are each a bit of both I suppose it is a bit of both yeah favorite meal of the day uh, a cup of tea before I go to bed mm-hmm. <laughs> or a cup of tea just when I get up I mean I really really love tea I really really love 
PG, I make a pot of tea like with PG tips mixed with lapsang souchong. Ooh. For me, that's like a really, really delicious, delicious <laughs> pot of tea that's better almost than any food whatsoever. Um, my son Dash, who's eight and has got a really good appetite, he absolutely loves lunch. He was talking about school dinners. He was like, oh, I love lunch. And I guess if I could have a really good lunch, I don't really, I feel, I always feel a bit lonely when I eat lunch during the week. But like a really nice lunch with your family at the weekend or a friend, that's probably my favourite. Yeah. Name one meal that always makes you feel happy. Roast chicken. <laughs> I bet a lot of people say that, don't they? Yeah, roast chicken and I think soup is one that's mm. always re- recurring. Mm. One food that has healed you. I think lentil soup. I think... In 2017, my husband had a very, very, very bad accident and he was in hospital in um, Paddington, at St. Mary's Paddington for a month. And every day for a month, I went up to see him. There's a Lebanese restaurant just opposite St. Um, Paddington. It's just a little cafe, but they do really well, just normal. I mean, it's just normal Lebanese soup with the like little crispy bits that you put on top and you put some lemon in. I could eat that every single day. That just makes me feel nurtured and cared for. It's mm. delicious. It feels nourishing. It feels healthy. I think that's probably, um, yeah, that's what I'd choose. One dish that reminds you of family. A lasagna. I think my mum cooking lasagna and the delight. I always want my, if I cook lasagna, I want the kids to go, oh my God, lasagna. They don't really, but I do. Definitely, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. That I think a big tray of homemade lasagna makes me think about mum, yeah. One recipe that everyone should know how to cook? Fish, well, like a fish chowder is really quite simple. Okay. Cooking fish with potatoes and stock is really quite delicious. Maybe putting some cream in um, mm. if you're going to go like the cullen skink angle. But that's that's nice and that's quick. So I think I would recommend that. And you can, yeah, you can either dress it up or dress it down, you know, put some prawns in or mussels in, make it more delicious or just keep it really simple with some, some cod and potatoes and parsley. Your best meal ever? I was in Istanbul with Pete. It was after, it was in 2020 and he was working or he was there for work and I went to see him for a weekend and Turkish breakfast like I remember on the last morning having a Turkish breakfast with all these delicious little pots of like tahini and honey and different types of cheeses some eggs cooked really nicely some raw vegetables that was really really delicious and I often think about that and think oh I'd like to be back in that hotel having that really nice breakfast yeah wow okay finally some food for thought what is the one piece of advice you would give to anyone experiencing grief that it changes, that when it first starts, when you lose somebody you love, you just think that your life, I felt like as if my life was over in some way or another. Mm-hmm. And I think the knowledge that I'm not necessarily saying it gets better, but it does change into a different shape. It changes into a different color. Sometimes it's beautiful. Sometimes the kind of incredible memory of that person is a beautiful thing. But it's also, and sometimes it's an incredibly heavy stone that you have to carry, but it won't always feel the same. I think that with that knowledge comes the knowledge that there are other people around you as well who are who are in it and living it and battling with it and carrying it and and coping with it. And that I think is really, really, really important to remember because the loneliness is really acute. And in my experience, the loneliness goes on, but then you meet somebody and you can kind of fall into them in some way or another, or you can offer your hand as well and be the shoulder. And I think that's really, really mm. important. But the, the the change, yeah, the change and the, the, and the other, the other folks you find in it too. Yeah. Yeah. Very important. And um, mm. yeah, wise advice. Thank you. Clover, thank you so much for talking to me. This has been so thought provoking and um, I think it's given us all a lot to think about and a lot to talk about. So thank you for your time and for joining me on this podcast. That's such a pleasure. It's been a really, really nice conversation. It's really interesting. Thinking about food is an interesting way of coming at it all and coming at life and remembering stuff and feeling stuff again in a a different way. So thank you very much. Thank you. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, you can buy Clover's book, The Red of My Blood, from the link in the show notes, and I would highly recommend the audiobook version, which is narrated by Clover herself. You can also buy my book, Single Bald Female, which is a novel about Jess, a young magazine journalist who is diagnosed with breast cancer and makes a remarkable new friend who teaches her a lot about living life to the full. Single Bald Female deals with issues of grief, death and also heartbreak and love, but it's also hopefully a very funny, uplifting and enjoyable read and it's had a lot of wonderful reviews so far from people saying it made them both laugh and cry. You may also be interested in the episodes I've recorded on food and cancer with the brilliant Copperfield founder Chris Halenga and food and heartbreak with the Australian podcaster Jesse Stevens. You can find these episodes by searching for Life in Food with Laura Price on any podcast platform and I really hope they provide you with food for thought. This is episode 10 of Life in Food with Laura Price and that's the end of season one. But I'm very excited to say that I'll be back with a special bonus episode next week on food and marriage with none other than my parents, Chris and Tony Price, who are celebrating their 50 year wedding anniversary this month. I'll also be back later in the year with season two and I have some amazing and diverse guests lined up. So please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and also give the podcast a nice juicy rating to help more people discover it. You can also follow me on Instagram at Laura Price Writes, where you'll find more information on my debut novel and my newsletter, as well as upcoming episodes of this podcast. Thank you for listening to Life in Food with Laura Price. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.